Thank you so much, Erin, for coming on the podcast today. Um, we're so glad to have you. Just a little bit about me and Mary just uh, and what we're doing here for those who might not know. Um, I, my name is Sylvia Frost. I'm a USA Today bestselling paranormal romance writer. And Mary is my partner in crime and my amazing developmental editor. Although she's not just my developmental editor anymore. I have to share her with the world, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and uh, today we're going to be looking at the first of your series, um, Storm Wielder. I think that's correct. Um, yeah. Yep. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to be uh, giving you advice about kind of ways that you might think about the packaging and then the look inside of your book and um, going through as if we are not our our alter ego reader selves of what would keep us from buying your book and what might compel us to buy your book because there's lots of great things that we notice too and we're going to talk about yeah. those as well. It seems like to start with, Erin, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Stormwielder and the Sword of Light trilogy and I don't know how what your experience has been so far. In back in high school, about ten years ago, I first came up with it in a creative writing project with my class. Something that I wanted to work more on, and okay. eventually I wrote the entire trilogy in my gap year between high school and university. But then I kind of just set it aside for the next five years while I finished university. Then I've picked it up while I was traveling, and uh, it's a story about a young guy called Eric and it's set in a medieval sort of sword and sorcery and uh, it's about eric and this power that he discovers inside himself that he can't control but which basically can take over the weather and wreak a lot of havoc when he loses control of his emotions and the first book is sort of about him learning about this power and how to control it and how he can do some good with it and make up for the bad stuff he's done there's a lot to like about what you've done and it seems like you're selling pretty well has uh you know just looking at your amazon rankings and how you're doing how long have the the books been out and what's kind of been your experience with the publishing side of things uh well i published stormwater in december 2015 and then i went on and published firestorm in july last year and then Soulblade in uh late november early december yeah so it's been fairly steady it did drop off a bit just before soul blade came out but uh, i was actually quite surprised with the reception for Stormwilder in the first right. place that really right. really shocked me <laughs> so so you've you've had kind of a long relationship with these books if you started them almost 10 years ago and they just came out last year so what's what's that did they evolve a lot during that process or what happened with that uh yeah most definitely definitely evolved a lot like even in the space of Stormwater, I mostly rewrote from an older draft that I'd written mm -hmm. five years ago or so. And uh, then Firestorm and Soulblade were both from the rough, very, very rough first draft that I'd written of the whole trilogy, yeah, like seven or eight years ago. So okay. they were definitely more reflect my more recent writing style, I guess, whereas Stormwild is a little, little bit less well-polished. I understand how that goes. I, it's funny, I look back at the first thing I published, and in some ways I think it's it's stronger than things I publish now because there's some kind of like freshness of your first thing, but in other ways it's just like you just cringe and you're like, oh, why did <laughs> I do that? <laughs> and, 
but but I think you know I think it sounds like you've written something that really resonates with readers and and Mary and I have some ideas of why that might be as well as you know ways that you might tweak stuff to get bring in more readers what do you think your book's strengths are and what brings readers in and then what do you think maybe are some of the weak points uh well it's kind of weird because like the cover had a lot of feedback on the cover that it's not the best for the gender and things but i think it's actually been something that's really caught people's attention right from the start when i first published it i put it together myself and had my own text type setting and everything done which uh, looked, looked pretty rubbish to be honest but that was when i sold the most books so i think it just sort of drew attention to it initially and i just sort of kept with the style for the next two books and um the, the story just jumps straight into the, the action. It's set right at this. Well, the prologue's a bit, a little bit slow, but it sort of sets the setting for the greatest story. And then when Eric is introduced in the first chapter, it sort of jumps straight into the action and draws readers in straight away. You must think that there might be ways that you might want to improve. So I'm wondering what those might be. I've always wondered whether my blurb could be improved at all. I mean, it's been up, been the same for about a year, over a year now. So. Could maybe could use some sprucing up and things. Awesome. And and feedback on the cover too. <laughs> yeah. So let's, without further ado, you want to jump right in, Mary? Um, sure. But we're going to start with the cover, which is basically a super close-in picture of a blue eye. Um, so you've got this sort of like, you know, eye of Sauron, but at an angle, and it's blue. Clearly, a human eye, right? So. Yeah. It's, you know, you've got the eyelashes, the skin, it's all desaturated except for the blue in the center. Um, and then at the bottom, we've got uh, the font. I think it's either Trajan or Sincel. It's a little hard to be sure. Um, and it's got, uh, it's kind of, it's raised up with drop shadow, a little bit of bevel, um, and then a white outline around it, and it's blue. And that's the same for the author name, which is at the top, and the title, which is at the bottom. It's got a really cool sort of uh, rain texture on there as well. And, um, and then the series name is in small print. So looking at this, I think there's a lot that it does uh, quite well. I think you're right in that it is a very dramatic image it, um, that really pops at a thumbnail. Uh, it's something that certainly draws the eye. Ha ha. <laughs> and um, the text is more or less visible, although I will say that for Stormwielder, because the bottom is dark, um, it's less visible in thumbnail, um, the title and author name. Um, and the font is says fantasy as well. Um, so that's all really good. Also great is it's you've carried over throughout the series, but you change enough so that we know that each book is a different book and we get a feel of the flavor of the book from the cover. So this is all good branding um, and is more than many people get to. So kudos, especially for doing it yourself. I will say, though, that I don't think it's doing you, your books, the best service for a couple reasons. The first reason is that it does not say fantasy to me in uh, the image in almost any way. Um, the big wide open eye really actually screams horror to me. I think the second book cover is a little bit more fantasy because at least there we get the fire texture and I feel like I can really see something reflected in the eye. Um, but the first one to me, it, it doesn't it doesn't say fantasy. If I was a fantasy reader and I, I saw that book, other than the font, 
which sort of hints at it, I might pass it by on the shelf um, because I might think, oh, this isn't, this doesn't grab me. You know, I would also say that the font is a little bit over-decorated. I like the rain texture on there and I, but I think that maybe the bevel and the outline and the drop shadow is just one, a few too many elements. It also doesn't actually help it become that much more visible against the dark background, the, the drop shadow, because the storm text itself is on the darker side. I think that if you wanted a quick fix to use your current cover um, and just make it more fantasy, having something reflected in the eye either, I think you do that a little bit in the second book, we've got a little bit of fire even just more lightning or ideally a scene that says fantasy. Cause I mean, this could be urban fantasy or superhero or anything, you know, an, a scene like a castle and a lightning or something in there to hint at fantasy would be, I think really powerful. If you were open to kind of redoing it entirely, just to give you an idea of a direction I think you could go, I emailed you a concept that I whipped up really quickly. And I'm just looking at your little, your one now, it looks quite cool quite like the lightning. Uh, so I think, you know, if you look at other people and you're also bots, I think is a great way. It's kind of a, it's a thin line because you don't want to look like everybody else, but at the same time, you know, there are sort of expectations and things that have been proven to grab people. And so finding that yeah. balance is, I think, something to, to think about. It's, yeah, the cover's definitely something I'd like to look at eventually. And uh, I've actually just published the complete trilogy in a box set. I'll just send you guys through the link now. And uh, I got a got a different cover designer to do this one. And I think you might find it screams fantasy a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I noticed that. And I think that that's really, that's really stronger. Well, my one thought of about something I did appreciate was that it's um, desaturated gray tone image. And then the eye is blue and storm wielder is blue. And I did feel like that was something that sort of picked up the weather element um, of the, uh, and the, and the other eye, I know the second eye is fire and it's kind of a red eye. And then, um, you've got a green one on the third cover, but with this one, I especially liked that at least the color did kind of mix with the storm wielder concept for me. That's actually yeah, deliberately the three books. The first one's about Eric and his power over the weather. And the second one's about actually about his sister who, uh, eventually learns he can, controls fire and then the last one well not entirely about it it's kind of more about a third character who has power of the earth so it's sort ah. of a progression all, all three characters are present throughout the series but it sort of focuses on each one's sort of development as they go you know i think that epic fantasy is moving more and more towards especially on the indie side towards people in the cover like if you think about like game of thrones and other things this used to be that like a sword or a symbol was really popular yeah. and it still is but there's more and more crossover from maybe urban fantasy or other places that are used to seeing people on the cover and that mm. and then also objects don't offer as much of a range to be definitive right there's only a sword there's only so many ways you can make a sword look different you know what i mean but human eyes are recognized to train on faces and people and so they're easier to distinguish so i think people or having a person or a scene offers more variety than than just an object 
it's it's also it's also probably a, a shift in trend. I'm old enough to remember when single object covers really came into fashion, um, which I'd I'd place it around the late nineties. And at that time everything had a person on it and so the objects really stood out and now it totally makes sense that things would be going the other way. Yeah. Um at least that's what I'm noticing just looking in your in your also bots because I mean I it's been a while I did the I was on the science fiction and fantasy cover design podcast and I went you know um onto the bestseller list and analyzed it statistically of what was where but things have changed even since then and um your audience might be different than even just the general fantasy audience which is why when I do covers I really like to look into people's also bots and see you know who is actually reading their books uh yeah, that's quite a good idea, actually. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. There are a few swords in there, but there's also yeah, a lot of people. Yeah. All right. So do we want to move on to the blurb now? Once again, because this is a short element, I'll I'll go ahead and read it out. We're talking about, again, Storm Wielder um, from the book one. For 500 years, the gods have united the three nations in harmony. Now that balance has been shattered and chaos threatens. A town burns and flames light the night sky. Hunted and alone, 17-year-old Eric flees through the wreckage. The mob grows closer, baying for the blood of their tormentor. Guilt weighs on his soul, but he cannot stop, cannot turn back. If he stops, they die. For two years, he has carried this curse, bringing death and destruction wherever he goes. But now there is another searching for him, one who offers salvation. His name is Alistair, and he knows the true nature of the curse. Magic. I, I just want to start off by saying there's a lot to like about this blurb. I think it is a more than serviceable blurb. I think it gets the job done. It appeals to your target audience. All of that is really great. There there are a couple things that kind of niggled at me and Mary, though, so we'll dive right into that now that we've been nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. <laughs> all right. You want to go, Mary, or...? For me, the thing that stood out was that, I mean, you have to open the read more to get to that second paragraph that kind of ends, you know, the punchline about, you know, Alistair knows the true nature of the curse, magic. Um, and my reaction was that I found that kind of an underwhelming punchline. I wasn't sure what else it could be besides magic. It's a curse. Um, so I feel like there's something that is a little bit in a way, generic about saying, oh, the big secret is magic, um, that there may be a way to make it a little bit more specific um, or give a, a word that has a little bit more atmosphere or is um, not so unique to your book that nobody knows what it is. Like, he knows the secret, Kaldor, uh, or something like that. But but between magic and a word that nobody would recognize, I think a little bit of uh, atmosphere would kind of sell me a little bit more that I'm going to get something unexpected when I open the book. Yeah, fair enough. It's quite a interesting one. I haven't really thought too much about that part of it. Yeah, I'm just trying to think what else I could put there or probably need to do quite a good rewrite on this at some point. It's been, yeah. hasn't been changed in quite a while now. <laughs> right. And I and, and my instinct is that, that I, I don't feel like I'm suggesting an easy change. Uh, and so it's it's definitely something you know to mull over to sleep on um, if there is you know something that really captures 
this is what makes my book special. This is what makes my character special. But I think that trying to find that thing that really sort of captures the book a little more, that's that's a pretty deep kind of thinking to do. Yeah, I think that's kind of a theme of a lot of the critiques that we're going to be doing today um, with you, Erin, which is there's a lot that you're doing right. And so, but I think that right now there's, it's just about trying to find ways to get you to that next level. You know, it, it's about kind of building that long-term core fan base. They see in the cover and the blurb and the writing that everything is sort of cohesive and unique um, and, you know, really that next level of professionalism is there. I'm not exactly sure how the story of Eric connects to this larger epic fantasy narrative that I think that you're going for here, um, which I think is what often is what people are reading for. So we, and we also, everything that happens in this blurb happens throughout, we, f we finish the blurb by the end of the look inside, basically. Um, so by the end of the look inside, we know how Eric destroys the town. We know that Alistair finds him. And um, so making sure that your blurb gives a little bit of a hint of the direction and, and a hook that isn't just contained within the look inside to keep people reading. That's going to go hand in hand with kind of finding ways to, to talk about connecting your log line, which is for 500 years, the gods have united the three nations in harmony and how that balance has been shattered and chaos threatens to Eric's more personal, intimate story. And I think that might be the punchline you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it doesn't actually have a lot of the bigger story in the blurb at all, does it? Each of my stories has been more about the characters themselves within this bigger thing that's going down between the gods and the big bad guy called Archon. I do want to hint that Al Alistair and um, Eric are going to have some kind of agency or place in the larger story, I think. I, I do want to compliment that there's some really nice language here that I think we'll find again mm -hmm. in the interior, you know. Um, and, and you've got a real sense of drama um, that shows right through. Like, you know, he cannot stop, he cannot turn back. If he stops, they die. It's simple, it's, um, you know, compelling. All that is good. That especially, I really like that if he stops, they die um, as being a nice um, surprise in the blurb. For sure, because we're so yeah. used to seeing blurbs that are like, you know, if Eric doesn't save the world, he'll lose his entire family and die. And then, like, this is a nice turn. It's a turn on that where we're not worried about the protagonist's survival. We're worried about the pain he can inflict on others, which is unique. And I think something that probably grabs people. All right. Yeah, that, that's actually probably my favorite line as well. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite pleased when it popped into my head. I was like, oh, that's perfect. That, that captures everything. The look inside is... Um fairly long um meaning that it, it felt to me like about at least about 20 pages and maybe uh more and it uh, starts with a prologue which features alistair who seems to be this um old weary old soldier being called back to the mission character um and basically alistair is waiting for his mission out in the woods um, and just to, so the prologue starts, Alistair stared into the fire, letting its, its heat wash through his damp cloak. The autumn storm had caught him in the open, drenching him before he could reach the shelter of a band of trees. The sudden violence of the storm was a grim warning of winter's fast approach. And through the prologue, there's quite a bit about the weather and kind of the atmospherics of this situation 
and um, Alistair uh, meeting someone who uh, gives him this mission, which is basically to go find Eric. So then we move on to Eric's chapter um, in which he's having a dream. What I liked was that Eric's chapter does a fantastic job of just drawing you straight into this one kid's concerns. Um, and to me, that suggests it would be helpful to get to that as soon as you can. Seemed to me like Alistair was sort of more about atmospherics and more about kind of there's been a backstory than he is about like plot happening right at the moment, um, which makes him a good frame, but makes me wish it was shorter um, to get to the idea that somebody is going to be having action right on the page and this is what it's going to look like and getting the reader's eyes that far in, um, I think would be helpful. I think one of the things that you're really strong with, and it's the same thing you're strong at in the prologue is evocative, um, vivid language that is just very quite readable. Um, but I think that that is also a little bit your downfall. Fantasy's tricky because fantasy loves long pages of vivid, evocative language. So I don't want to say trim everything. But I do want to say that what we need is we need some sense of what Alistair is waiting for sooner. Or we need something that gives us a sense of what the heck Alistair is doing here. Otherwise, we've just got the visuals. And it doesn't have to be the first line, but I'd like before the end of the first paragraph to let us know that Alistair is waiting for something sort of supernatural. And, you know, I, I do think that while lots of these atmospherics are great, you might just have a few too many. Um, and then there was one thing that really drew me out of the story right away, which is um, the line, uh, a head appeared in the trees nearby, its long face staring at him. Um, Alistair gripped his sword and fought to control the pain in his chest. His horse snickered at his fear and retreated into the shadows. It took me at least three reads to realize that the head was the horse. <laughs> Just because that line, a head appeared in the trees nearby, is so evocative, like so many of your lines. But for me, when I think of a head appearing, I was like, oh my God, is it a ghost? Like, is it a decapitated head that someone threw? Like, what's happening? And I was really excited to be like, oh man, there's this head appearing, of you know, in places. And then it... It, then I had to realize, read a couple times, realize, oh, it's his horse. And if I was if I was picking up a book, that would be the kind of thing that might get me to put it down because I just would be quite useful stuff to hear. Like, um, I'd really love to go back and re rewrite the whole of Stormwell at some point, if not the whole look inside, at least a part of it, because this is going to be your feeder for the entire series. If people don't get through Stormwilder, they're never going to get to the second book. When a reader is reading, they have this trial period where they're like, is this book going to be for me? And then once they sold, like once they click buy, they're much more likely to finish the book. So like that's why these first couple pages are so critical. Yeah, and fair enough. I mean, I think that's why part of the reason why Stormwilder has attracted a few negative reviews. I think the yeah. issue isn't after, it's before they click buy. You want someone to be clicking by the first time i think um and and, and yeah, so i you know what i mean so it's not so much an issue that's why i'm actually saying that i wouldn't go back and necessarily bother with editing the whole thing because it's super long and clearly you're grabbing people but you know maybe there's some room in this look inside to kind of grab more people and then once they're hooked then they can be you know they might notice a spelling mistake and not care which is a good idea since it would be a lot easier than rewriting the whole thing you can also take 
treating this and you know treating that wish for things to be better treating that willingness that you've shown to keep coming back to this and make it better each time that's a really big deal and in my observation that's really key to long-term writing success I thought from the blurb and from some things that I'd read that Eric had wiped out a couple of villages before and knew what was go- what was likely to happen um, and was in one of those don't make me angry, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry situations. Sylvia thought, and I can understand, and I can see, like we talked about this, so Sylvia then thought that Eric had had nightmares but had not actually killed anybody before. Maybe it had like one or two sparkings, but you know, right. not not a whole destruction. Whatever the answer to that is, you just want to be sure that it's coming through the writing. Because if Eric has killed people before, I didn't understand why he seemed like such an innocent as he's wandering into this village. And if he hasn't killed people before, then there seem to be a couple of cues, including in the blurb, that he has. Um, And so I just wanted to put out there that there was that confusion and whatever the answer is, trying to line things up so that it's clear where you're coming from with that would be helpful. Because there's lots and lots of fantasies about the innocent that gets into trouble and eventually becomes king, you know, and then there's a good number of fantasies about like, you know, the cursed one. And, uh, and so, but which one this is would be helpful to define. I got the sense pretty clearly that Eric hadn't killed people before. And, you know, maybe he had, he had burnt down his house or there was some incident, but I, well, the real question for me is why now? Because that is a hugely, I think, compelling question that I think will really, if you've got an answer to that, even if it's in some small detail, like his, it was the first village he had seen that looked nothing like his home village where no one would know him. Um, I think the stronger that reason is, the stronger the pain will be when it doesn't work out. Um, because right now, Oaksville, you've such a talent for beautiful, really vivid descriptions. I love the bit, you know, the layer of fog clinging to the slope. I love the bit about him ducking into the tunnel. I love all the smells and all of that. But as beautiful as those descriptions are, in some ways, I feel like they aren't super specific about what it is, what is Oaksville, what makes Oaksville different from the last six towns he passed. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's quite a good point. I hadn't actually thought about something like anything like that. Yeah, it was more well, just this desperate loneliness that drove him there. But I want to see it in. I want to see the longing that he has for those people, and we get it a little bit. But I think it's not quite as honed as it might as it might have been about the yearning there in in the descriptions and in what makes this that he wants it. You know, that warmth and that 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 feeling feeling of home even the opposite right we've got you know he wakes up from this nightmare and then we've got the fingers of branches clawing at his clothing which, you know and we've got him shivering in this holy blanket and worn leather jacket all of that is that is really great and he's got measly possessions those things are all kind of represent misery but they don't scream loneliness to me they scream kind of lack of food lack of shelter sort of survival concerns but it doesn't scream that the problems that those present to me aren't loneliness. They're like, I don't have enough to eat or a place to sleep, which to me are different. There's, it's a subtle differentiation, but I think it's it's there. Um, they're symptoms, but they're not quite the same thing. But this is all very, you know, this is higher level stuff. So this right. is just something to think about. 
Right. And then speaking of higher levels, something I, there's something I'd really like to call out to praise as I think as something that's a particularly, I think, and a really effective part of this look inside section. So we meet Eric. Eric, Eric heads into this village that's full of all these merchants, and he clearly feels like he doesn't fit in. And another character, Piro, sort of scoops him up, very friendly, offers to show him the rope, show him where he needs to go. Um, and then, so I'm... For my part, I was immediately thinking, yeah, I bet this is a bad guy. And importantly, Sylvia, who's just as, you know, experienced and everything, wasn't thinking that. And so you have a really nice, to me, that shows that that's just the right level of surprise um, about not the, that, you know, two experienced readers went different ways on what they were expecting from that moment. Um, and so I really love that that is, I love that a moment like that is in the look inside because it's sort of, showing your skills it's sort of by taking the reader by surprise in that first couple of pages i think that that's a really effective hook like that's something that tells me i do want to keep going with this there's going to be more that i don't see coming oh that's good to hear <laughs> it was actually um that whole scene is sort of something i had to add in a bit later because the original version when I was 13, mind, was that he uh, sort of just can't, can't cope with crowds, basically. Yeah, but I mean, I really like this, that he's seeking, he's seeking friends and he goes in and, and he wants one and then it goes wrong, even before he goes wrong, you know, that so even before he, it's not just the problems with the, his powers that are an issue, it's that the world outside is hostile. Yeah, so I think that there's a, a lot to like in this look inside. I Once Eric gets started, the rest of the book that we see is basically nonstop action. And in most ways, that's a good thing. Like, the fact that there is so much action is definitely positive, but... It's another kind of subtlety as far as like wanting to show the reader what you can do um, would be to look for a place for there to be a breather for maybe maybe Eric reflects on what has happened or, you know, like a moment of reflection or um, some kind of pause in the midst of all of that action um, that I think it's helpful there's a point where action becomes kind of exhausting and uh, to kind of show that there are going to be little breaks and that that's something to kind of bring into um, a look inside um, in the future. Yeah, um, yeah, I was just looking through how far it goes into it. And there's, there's small breaks and Gabriel comes into it. But yeah, there could definitely be a bit more pause, especially when he's escaped the crowd and just before Alistair shows up. Yeah, I, I think we were thinking actually even more a little later. At least that's what, what I was thinking when I was thinking breaks. I mean, because uh, I think when it really hits the nonstop action is after he destroys the town onward, is when we are just nothing but moving. Um, and I think actually even at the very end, skipping ahead, the part where he falls off the, he's fallen off the wall and you, he's presumably like unconscious and has been unconscious for some while. And then I think waking up and having a moment with Alistair would be really great there. But and we right. and but instead we're we're dragged right back into a chase with guards right. again. Um, right, and, giving giving the two of them a moment to talk somewhere in all of that time after they join up would is is, is another example of respite. It doesn't have to be just total stop all the action, but you know here's this savior question comes out of nowhere, and you probably want to know something about him. Right. 
Um, and as the readers, we do too, because he was sort of a mysterious figure at the prologue at the beginning. Um, so, you know, I think that's that's a really good opportunity there. Um, zooming back a bit, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, description again, and but this time about emotional descriptions. Um, I, I think while you do visual descriptions amazingly well, and you have a poetic flair for emotional descriptions, I would caution you to be careful about having too many emotional descriptions that are telly. Terror gripped him, and then the second sentence later, you say, you know, he was afraid of heights. I think that's something that you could let us see, and in fact, you often do let us see and let us experience instead of telling us, like, even the sentence, you know, the mob was driven by hate. You know, I I feel as if there are moments in that when we know that they're driven by hate because we can see it and we can feel it. And then prescribing to us what the characters feel lets it distances us from them and doesn't allow us to experience it with them. Yeah, definitely. That's actually a critique I've had a few times from particularly from Stormwelder. That I need to reduce the amount of descriptive <laughs> based on emotion and sort of just show it rather than tell it and it's something I'm, something I'm definitely been working on in my later books is trying to describe things like your heart, heart pounding and splitting and that sort of thing rather than just saying I think you don't even need as many of those, you know, because I think one of the like one of the real strengths of your writing is that it brings us in. This is I'm going to mention her every time. She really should be paying me. But there's this amazing uh, editor's book who I really love. Her name is Margie Lawson. And what she makes you do when you're editing, you highlight every part of your book with a different color based on what it does. So yellow for internal thought and dialogue, pink for sort of visceral um, reactions like heart pounding or, you know, bile rising in your throat, red for like actual verb action and dialogue. And so it's a great way to see where the balance is. And one of the things that she says is that you really don't need that much pink. You don't need that many of the visceral reactions because if every sentence is a visceral reaction, there's it's really hard to get up to the buildup. If, you know, if we're always in horror or shock or terror, then it lands <laughs> less with less strength. That's actually quite, that's quite a cool way of looking at of the going for it. Yeah. With the colors. Yeah. And so I, I, I recommend, I love it. If only there was a tool that could just go through and highlight it for I us. I know, right? right? <laughs> hey, you know, Silicon Valley, this is what writers need. Kind of going back to that bit about Oaksville having the specificity, I, I also want to bring that back in general, not just like the specificity of what it means to Eric, but also the specificity of the setting itself. As I said, you're really great at evocative descriptions, but sometimes what you're describing can feel a little bit any town medieval USA, um, just a tad. And, and there are some moments when you don't do that. Like there's the moment with the three-pronged temple where he sees in the distance. I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. Um, and so I, I kind of yearned for more moments of that that took me a little bit that were more, you know, that made me think, oh, this world is special. Um, this world is different than other worlds that I've seen. Yeah, yeah, I do. And um, you know, it does show more more in this book and even more in the later books because, well, I'm not sure if 
you've read about me at all, but I've spent the last two and a half years traveling through Southeast Asia, the Canada, USA, and Latin America. And uh, a lot of the scenery, a lot of the towns and the descriptions of poverty and things in various places I've drawn from cities I've visited in Mexico and Guatemala and Latin America and things. <laughs> and uh, same, with, same with the mountain scenes and all that sort of thing. So they do get more and more vivid, whereas this one was written before, well, it was rewritten during my travels, but it wasn't pulled, didn't pull as much from them because of that. Yeah. yeah. Each of these little things are things that like get the reader closer to buy. And I feel like the hardest thing to do is to get a reader to buy the first book and the first series of a reader that they don't know, of an author they've never seen before. That's like, it's always the hardest road to hold. So anything that you can bring in from those later books to this look inside, I think is gonna do you a service to getting, bringing readers more in more quickly and, and, and more of them. Um, the last point I had was just about Gabriel. Um, I think it's really, it's an awesome idea that you, that you have of having him, having this person who's actually been hurt by, uh, by Eric. So as the audience, we really get to see the cost I think that's it was a really strong choice. Again, with the specificity, um, the specificity of emotion that Gabriel had for his fiance and for the life that he's lost didn't didn't ring as authentic and specific as it might have. Until morning, he had lived a simple life, toiling alongside his father and the family forge, drowned by the love of his parents and soon-to-be wife. That's an awesome sentiment. It's great, but it doesn't really quite make me feel what he's feeling. If you know what I mean, even if you had said something like. You know, every day his wife baked him a cake, which she, you know, wrote his name on. But the, and that day it was and and that day it was a little burnt, but he ate it and didn't care. Even just a small anecdote, something like that, that makes them feel like real people, um, would make the cost of it feel realer too. Um, and and that way, when he swears his revenge to, you know, go and pursue Eric at the end of his little section, um, you know, I I'm. I can sympathize with him instead of just being like, yeah, it sucks your whole family died, but man, Eric's the protagonist of the story, so, you know, go yeah. screw yourself. And, uh, and and I think, too, that we do spend a little too much time with Gabriel. Um, again, the same kind of thing of maybe having a few too many descriptions, but I think that's especially, prob um, you know, an issue here because he's not a main character. And it, and the and so it feels like, I mean, he, he might be a main character in importance, but he's not... He's not, he's a deviation from the narrative thread and from the forward momentum of the plot because he's, we're with him seeing something that we've already seen, um, which is the destruction of this world just through a different lens. Yeah, that makes sense. The, um, yeah, Gabriel sort of becomes the main uh, antagonist for the first half of the story, at least. That facing sort of hunting Eric, but yeah, it, I quite like the idea with the wife and everything. Can think of something up, something that I could add in, in there, <laughs> and that make make it a bit more real. I've actually always felt that Gabriel's starting chapters, at least, were the weakest. Later on, I feel he becomes more real, and he's actually the one that discovers the family before Eric and. He kind of makes a deal with the devil after losing to Eric and Alistair and uh, sort of loses himself in a, a different sort of magic that sort of 
makes him do some pretty bad things himself. So then that sort of, I feel like it becomes much more interesting character halfway through the book than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, you find your way. So, Aaron, I'm I'm curious about what's next for you. Uh, well, this trilogy is finished and it wraps up, concludes the whole story pretty satisfactory. It's, uh, I won't go into spoilers here in case anyone wants to read it, but basically everything wraps itself up and you have your ending with all the characters. Well, mm-hmm. some of them are happy, some of them aren't, and some of them are dead. <laughs> <laughs> some of them are happy and dead. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe not happy and dead. <laughs> Yes, so now I'm working on a um, science fiction trilogy that I've been, it's, it was also sort of an idea I came up with back, way back in the day, but something I never actually wrote more than a couple of chapters on, so now I'm quite curious to see where it goes, and it's about a uh, sort of alternative future America, where uh, it's still the western, the states have sort of separated, but there's still a conglomerate in the west, and the uh, government's a little bit corrupt and have kidnapped, been kidnapping children. And uh, those mischievous governments. Well, well, technically the children are uh, the children of traitors, supposedly. And uh, normally that would be their whole family of traitors would be put to death, but they've decided to use the children for more productive means, and they're experimenting on them basically. <laughs> So this is all to say that you're doing a lot right yeah. now. That willingness to sort of look at it and say, well, it wasn't what I wish it was. Um, what can I do a little differently next next time? And that willingness to kind of face that is a big deal. And you've been showing that with this project since freaking high school. And so that's, you know, I'm, I'm really impressed to, to know that, but also... I think it's good for any writer when you find that in yourself to sort of embrace it as you're doing something right. Oh, thank you guys. Yeah, the um, yeah, it's been kind of my baby for the last ten years, really. Yeah. yeah. 